this late political gabfest. January 11th, 2024, the should Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin be fired edition. I'm David Fonz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson of CBS Prime Time on a much-deserved vacation. Emily Bazelon of New York Times Magazine from the University of is here. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. And sitting in for John, one of our all-time favorites, one of your all-time favorites, listeners, New York Times op-ed columnist Jamel Bowie, live from Charlottesville, Virginia. Hello, Jamel. Hello, hello. This week on the GapFest, the Pentagon and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin are bumblingly trying to explain away his secret illness and hospitalization. Should he lose his job over this snafu, this mess up? Then judges seem poised to reject Trump's immunity claims in D.C., even as the Georgia case against Trump may fall apart over potential misconduct by the Fulton County DA. Then we'll be joined by Alec McGillis to discuss the crisis in school absenteeism and what can be done about it. And of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And I have maybe the greatest cocktail chatter that's ever been. I'm just previewing that. Wow, that's setting a really high standard. Yeah, it may also be the worst cocktail chatter that's ever been. (laughs) I like that it could land on either extreme. That makes me excited. I would bet that neither Emily nor I could have told you a single fact about Lloyd S. Austin a week ago. Jamel. Lie. I know all about him. Anyway, go ahead, Jamel. Jamel Jamel probably could have because Jamel comes from a military family, and I feel like Jamel is more up on things. The the SecDef, uh, who is a former general, uh, is famously private and low-key, which may explain the phenomenal FUBAR set of mistakes he's made in the last month. Uh, It has now come out that Austin had prostate surgery in late December, was rehospitalized with complications on New Year's Day, hid his medical issues from the White House and even his own aides in some sense until the crisis eased around January 4th. His own deputy defense secretary, Kathleen Hicks, was given temporary authority over the department during his illness, but even she did not know why she was getting this temporary authority. The White House also didn't know anything about it until soon before it became public. And all this was happening while the U.S. was uh, drone striking in Iraq and engaged in military uh, matters in Israel and Ukraine. So, So, Emily, it's obviously a mistake that Austin made, and it's obviously like a glaring and and any other person on the planet seemingly, you know, mistake you shouldn't have made. Like it was glaring to everybody. It was so obvious. But is it a firing offense or a resigning offense? No. I I, I feel like this is such an old school kind of I mean, to even use the word scandal seems wrong. It the indignation that I'm reading about it feels so obligatory to me. Like in the post-Trump isn't it era, fun, the though, idea to get, that isn't it someone fun? isn't it fun it is to get fun indignant about something it feels that, so that low feels stakes. Like it's from nineteen eighty four. Exactly. And it feels super low stakes. You can kind of sympathize with him. He obviously treasures his privacy, don't we all? Yes, of course, he should have told people where he was. His deputy should have known if she was on deck. And like nothing went wrong. So I don't know. In the end, let's all move on. So Jamel, do you think there's anything that the world can learn from this particular self-inflicted wound? This one's tough because I'm I'm also inclined to Emily's position that like even in the scheme of like a '90s scandal because this feels very sort of like Clinton '93 to me. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. 
Clinton 93. Excellent analogy. <laughs> even, even on those terms, this just feels very minor um, and not, not that big of a deal. I suppose it is. it may raise questions simply about the communication between the communication between the um, Department of Defense and the White House. Like, I think it should, I think it should have been the case. As much as I understand uh, Lloyd Austin's desire for privacy, he is someone who is within the chain of command. He is not, you know, he, the, the president is his boss. And I think he does have an obligation um, to let the, let the White House know what's going on. Um, the thing that gives me a little bit of pause about this is just sort of like the kind of assumption of total autonomy that the Department of Defense, like or Austin, kind of assumed there, um, is a little bit troubling. Not in like the biggest way, but sort of like you don't want this kind of thing to become a habit. You really want the military, in particular, to feel obligated to tell the White House what its top officials are doing. <laughs> Uh, 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 so that's like, that's like my one kind of like, this is where it becomes something worth taking a little seriously, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's worth the consternation. We're recording this today after the Republican debate in Iowa between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. And I was watching them and they were like, oh my, you know, commander in chief should never, you know, should never, uh, not know, uh, you know exactly what is happening. This is a this was a um, complete failure of leadership by Joe Brandon. You know it, it's 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 that's a bit much. Fred Kaplan and and Slate made the argument that he should be fired simply for being so irrelevant to the Biden operation that could he could be a wall for weeks and no one cared or needed to know. I totally take issue with that. The reason I actually really do know right now who Lloyd Austin is, is that I think he's been helpful um, about the Israel-Hamas war. He made a speech a few weeks ago talking about the danger of strategic defeat for Israel, which I thought was like a good way of having the Biden administration sound an extra note of caution and concern about what the Israelis are doing that wasn't Biden himself talking. So I thought that critique that he's irrelevant, it just seemed especially wrong to me right now. The thing about that critique is that like, it's not, it's not as if the Secretary of Defense is Strangely, strangely enough, some high-profile official, right? Like sometimes they can be. Donald Rumsfeld was, Mark Esper was, largely because Trump himself was like, you know, trying to overthrow the government. So Esper, <laughs> Esper was taking his oath to the Constitution quite seriously. Uh, but past Secretary of Defense have been relatively low key, uh, and so the idea that the idea that uh, Austin should be fired or should resign because he's not. Uh, he doesn't appear to be that big of a deal or that important to the Biden administration just seems a little off key. Like, well, this is like a bureaucratic administrative job and it it isn't necessarily a policymaking job like the secretary of state. I like the idea that he's just a person who really values his privacy and has sought to maintain it even despite a very successful career in the military and now obviously a very uh, large job, but that, that you could, you could, in a world where most people are angling for attention and likes and media coverage that he just doesn't care, doesn't want it. And, and, you know, to his detriment in this case, because it made him overvalue that privacy uh, and, and make a mistake about it. But it is a, a refreshing tonic in 
in a world where very few people are like that. Also, isn't who doesn't sympathize with like, you know, trying to send the occasional text or email and pretending that you're there when you're not, which I don't know, maybe that's not always doing, but that was immediately what my mind went to was like, oh, yeah, I don't I'm, need, I don't need to put my out of office exactly. message on. I'll just occasionally yeah, yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm here. Yeah, that's right. Here, exactly. He wasn't golfing. Either. That was what I would be doing. I'd be golfing. I'd be like, oh, I'm just checking in. Right. That's that. That is sort of the other thing. It's like if he had been on recreation, I think the outrage would make a little more sense. But he, he was undergoing cancer treatment, um, and that that is a little understandable. Again, the Department of Defense should let the White House know these things. But I, I think yeah. this prompts a really great Washington party game, which is the who matters game based on would anyone care if that person was in the hospital? And I, I was thinking I was making sort of a mental list. Like what, what positions in Washington would anyone care about if they were in the hospital? And I, and my list is pre, well, president Supreme court justice. It depends on what day of the week, frankly, only if there's oral right, argument. Right, right, yeah. like, no, 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 because people are, no, oh, in the hospital. Like, oh, might, oh, I see. They I might see. die. Okay. There's going to be an opening. Okay. Fair chair, enough. chair of the fed. Maybe, and then I think maybe Secretary of State, maybe Secretary of Defense, I guess Vice President, and that's maybe Secretary, maybe Secretary of the Treasury. That's it. Like if the Secretary of Labor is in the hospital, I'd no say the one- Speaker of the House. Really? Right? Like, like t- really? Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah, too. I'd say, I'd say, I'd say. I mean, maybe not this Speaker of the House, but like. <laughs> if Nancy Pelosi had been in Mitch the hospital, McConnell, we yeah, would Mitch, care. McConnell. Mitch McConnell, yeah, Mitch McConnell, we would care if Mitch McConnell was in the hospital. No. I would care. Um, but is there anybody else? I mean, I, I, there's very few other people that you, it would matter. That's a, that's a really good question. The chief of staff, White House chief of staff, I think that's that, that is sort of a very critical job. Um, if they were in the hospital, and they're probably in the hospital because they're so stressed out, which indicates something else that's happening. I like that one. The final note I'm going to make on this, I, I, I wanted to talk about this because it is because of its its quality of being like a like a Caribbean vacation compared to most of the shit we have to talk about on this on the Gabfest because the world is so depressing. So I'm glad we got to do it. I realized it was trivial, and I'm going to even trivialize it even more. Which is, and Jamel, as a, again as a child of as a military brat, maybe you can comment on this. I was in just surprised to discover that the spokesman for the Pentagon is a major general. A ma- there's a, the guy who's the spokesman of the Pentagon, the press secretary of the Pentagon is major general Pat Ryder. It seems like that should be a job that like a captain or a Lieutenant Colonel could do. Like, do they really need a major general? Shouldn't this guy be commanding tanks or something? I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole in all the branches, there's basically like a public relations and public affairs and communications like core, basically like that's the thing you can do going into the service. I just pulled up um, Pat Ryder's uh, bio here and he was commissioned through the air force ROTC uh, back in 92. So this actually makes total sense to me. Like he went to college, he was ROTC, he graduated, he got his commission as an officer and as a, you know, as a college boy, uh, he probably was like just directed into um, uh, communications and public affairs in the Air Force. And that's like a totally normal career track. Um, and so this makes total sense to me. Like he's a he's an Air Force major general. But like, I don't know. I don't know a ton about the Air Force, but I, I, I think I would consider that more sort of like, yeah, he's he's been promoted a bunch. Um, and when you're promoted a bunch and you're an officer, right, sort of like he didn't enlist. Um, so he's an officer. You're promoted a bunch. Uh, uh, 
that's you know one day you wake up as a major general you're one day you wake up old. as a major it's general it's like being vice president of comms right right exactly exactly um man i could have been a major general by now i graduated in 92 a modern major general i that, i definitely would have been a modern major general the very model of a modern major general i am the very model of a modern major general <laughs> information vegetable animal and mineral i knew the kings of england and i quote the fights historical from marathon to waterloo in order categorical i'm very well acquainted too with matters mathematical uh, i'll say I i'm looking at his, uh, his, his official portrait and i do it is it, it is kind of cool to be uh, you're like a public relations guy but you get to wear a fancy uniform and you have all these uh you have all these bars to indicate your rank it's like have you seen those portraits of new york city um sanitation collection officials like high-ranking officials they have like the coolest uniforms and like the bars and everything more professions should have that right when you get to the top you get a, you get a dope uniform and some like flair my my father was in the public health service, and I have his public health service uniform. And he had the he had like a very high rank in the public health service, and he had I think he even had a sword. I mean, it was that rules ridiculous. that what? rules. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Could you imagine you, 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 your editor of a magazine and they give you a sword? <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> do you want to hear more from us after this episode? I bet you do after that segment. You should definitely stick around Stick around for our bonus segment. Today, we're going to be talking about if you had to make a second Mount Rushmore, first of all, that would be very difficult. But second of all, what four presidents would you put on it and why? This segment is just for Slate Plus members, however. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you because of your support. We've been able to keep the GabFest going these many years. But if you're not a Slate Plus member, think about signing up. We'd love it. You'll get bonus segments of every episode of the GabFest and other Slate podcasts, you'll hear Jamel. Jamel is practically, he's Slate Plus royalty. You cannot find a great Slate Plus segment at Slate without Jamel on it, even though he doesn't even work at Slate anymore. Uh, So you'll get lots of Jamel. uh, You'll get discounts at live shows. You'll get no hitting the paywall on the Slate site. And so if you're a member, again, thank you. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. 
I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. A three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit seemed very skeptical of former President Trump's claim this week that he's entitled to full immunity from prosecution for acts he undertook as president, uh, notably, notably the actions he undertook which brought uh, to overturn the election and which led to charges from special counsel Jack Smith. So, Emily, start by telling us what Trump was claiming and how the judges were skeptical of him. Oh, man. I mean, Trump is making an extremely broad argument. He is arguing for absolute immunity. So the idea is it doesn't matter what crime he is alleged to have committed. He may not be prosecuted because all of it is somehow part of his official duties in the presidency. That basically there is no crime for which a president can be prosecuted unless he has already been impeached and convicted by the Senate. And this led to these amazing hypotheticals where the just the judges said things like, well, if you sent a bunch of Navy SEALs in to execute, assassinate your political rival, would that be a crime? And the lawyer said, well, you'd have to be impeached and convicted first, to which the Justice Department lawyer said, well, what if you resign? So effectively, this creates this enormous loophole. It's not an argument that the court is going to accept. And it was in absolute contradiction, Jamel, with the arguments that Trump himself made during his last impeachment, I can't even remember which number impeachment it was, his second impeachment, I guess, um, which was that, oh, he shouldn't be uh, convicted in the Senate. It was the criminal courts would be the place to sort out these charges. So he, he when, when it's convenient for him to say this should be a criminal court trial, he says that when it's convenient for him to say, oh, it's impeachment in the Senate, uh, impeachment and conviction in the House and Senate, he says that. Right. I mean, the, the thing I, I, that I kept thinking of reading um, the pre- former president's lawyers make this case for kind of total presidential immunity is that it's legalistic is the wrong adjective. I can't think of the one I, I want to use, but it feels like completely divorced from any common sense understanding of the constitutional system, right? Like, I suppose that given present law, current law, like, you know, the recent precedent around the executive branch over the past few decades. I suppose there's a case the former president's lawyers could make that there is some expansive presidential immunity. But if you just like pause and like step back for a second and ask yourself, what was what? (laughs) And I'm, I'm saying this not as someone who's an originalist, right? Like just, but like thinking common, common, commonsensically, what, was the purpose of the constitution like what's the idea here and the very explicit like clear unambiguous idea was that elected officials and specifically the top official the top leader of the country are bound by laws the whole complaint of the revolutionary generation the the, the, the the two main complaints is that first, we don't have adequate representation as members of this polity. And second, the king is not bound by anyone. And that is like that 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 offends our sense of how this should work. And so to to think that 
given like the the premise of American democracy, like rest on even even the top guy is bound uh, by not just the public, but by a set of rules and institutions. The, the idea that there's some total presidential immunity just doesn't make any conceptual sense because then that's not a president, right? Like by definition, that's no longer a president. If 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 the person in the office of the presidency could, you know, get SEAL Team Six to assassinate his rivals and then pardon all of them, uh, or just have it do it and not even bother with that and say, well, you know, this is a duty as president. This is my duty as president. Then that person isn't a president anymore. That 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 person exists beyond the rule of law, beyond constitutional government. They're like they're like a dictator, or if not a dictator, they're some sort of like autocratic figure. But they're not a president. And so it's sort of like the law aside, just thinking about the political system. By definition, a president is bound by law. By definition. Otherwise, they're not a president. There is a more serious argument here, which Trump's lawyer also made, to be fair to him, which is the idea that, you know, if you're a president in office and you're making difficult decisions, say, in wartime, um, he talked about, you know, George W. Bush during the Iraq War or Obama sending out drones, that you can't do those things if you're constantly looking over your shoulder that you might get prosecuted, right? The The problem with the argument in this context, to connect back to what you're saying, Jamal, is that it's really hard to see how Trump was acting within his official duties as president when what he was doing was trying to mess around with election results. That's really about his interest as a candidate. And so that part of the picture seems really important. Um one concern I had listening to the oral argument was uh, there was one judge who talked about, well, maybe we need to send this back to the district court for more fact finding about the distinction between official duties and private acts as a candidate. And the problem with that, of course, is delay. Every beat, every day that passes is helpful to Trump in pushing this case down the road um, to when he will be a presumably officially the Republican nominee for president, and then maybe even the president if he wins in November and this case goes away. As I've said on the Gapfest many times before, his strategy is to lose every battle, but to fight every battle. And then one day you wake up and and if he wins the election, he's president and all of this stuff effectively can go away. And this, he's already, he's already, the, the legal arguments were preposterous. The judges will throw them out. That when it gets to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court will also reject them. We know that. I mean, we're, we can, you can be pretty confident the Supreme Court's going to reject them. But it's going to be. When is that going to be, Emily? It's going. Is it going to be April? Is it going to be May? Is it going to be June? Can I just say that I don't think the Supreme Court has to take this case. Like I think that one completely plausible and acceptable outcome would be a ruling for a three-judge panel at the D.C. Circuit, and that's it. And we just like move well, on. Well, Trump now, will appeal. You know, Trump will appeal it. So that. Oh, he will appeal, but it's up to the, first of all, the entire D.C. Circuit, all 11 of them. They could rehear the case. They could not. The Supreme Court can also decide not to rehear the case. So in other words, it, that the further delay you're imagining, while it's totally possible it will happen, well, it does not what, have what to What can the district court, the trial court judge do to restart the trial? Can the trial court judge say, you know, while this is being appealed to the Supreme Court, um, I'm going to start the trial anyway. I mean, this, presumably this is so, so it, no. it does require, it's going to require a final disposition, even if it's a rejection by the Supreme Court. And that, yeah, but a rejection by the Supreme Court could take 
like yeah. days. That could happen very quickly. It's the court hearing the case that takes time. What is your sense, Jamel, about politically how all this pregame litigation, the non-trials that are preceding the trials, how it's playing politically? I don't think it's playing politically at all. I think this is that sort of like the sub, not sub political level, but like the sub level that people, normal people pay attention to. I don't think anyone really has any sense of this stuff unless they're like paying close attention. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I, I, you know, this is my job and I have to like say to myself, I'm going to pay attention to this stuff now to see what's happening. So uh, I don't think it really is playing politically. I think that when there's a big headline, right? Uh, 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 appeals court, you know, rejects Trump's immunity claim. Supreme Court rejects, declines to hear, you know, that kind of thing. That will begin to break through to the public, um, but not not this level of stuff. I do think. I mean, I'm I'm of the view that if you know when Trump <laughs> Trump on trial during an election um, is going to create constant coverage that is not good for him. Uh, and so I think that will have an effect politically. It's going to remind people of all the things they did not like about Trump's four years in office. But I'm not. We're not. At, we're not at that stage yet. I would like to make one sort of like broad point about how American government is structured that like kind of produces this sort of dilemma, and that is um, that you know most people learn. I think in you know high school civics or high school government or whatever that the founding fathers didn't like political parties and sort of like, you know, George Washington warns against faction and his farewell address and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's just sort of like typically given as a throwaway as part of like Americans, like longstanding suspicion of parties and partyism. But I think, which I kind of have, don't have that much time for, but the more, I think interesting thing is that, it's not just that they didn't like parties, but that like the structure of American government was not built with political parties in mind. And that has like real implications for how everything plays out in practice. Like one of them, for instance, is that like we basically had to like jerry rig a party system onto the constitutional system. Um, you see this in the history of the Electoral College, which within like a decade is completely unrecognizable from what was designed in terms of how it works in practice. Um, very quickly, state legislatures are realizing that like, oh, we can't have it work the way we it was written down because otherwise our party's candidate will lose. And that is, you know, you have this process that ends basically by the 1820s of kind of figuring out how this is this particular institution is going to work within the context of political parties. But the president, right? The president as party leader is a thing that has to that had to be like innovated and created and then sort of like imposed onto the system because constitutionally the president parties don't exist and the president is not a party leader. And so you you do have this um and to to add to this parties end up becoming the necessary connective tissue for presidents to even work their will on the legislature. Um, and so it, it, it is this interesting tangle, right? Where the president uh, can't, you can't really fully separate official presidential duties and party duties because the two are entwined together um, by necessity and have been, you know, have been basically since, since Thomas Jefferson. And this is a thing that, maybe in a better design system, a more modern system wouldn't be as much of an issue. Uh, but, you know, we, we have, 
we have essentially kind of like modern politics on top of uh, an 18th century um, design. And so Jamel is, are you connecting this because the argument that Trump was acting somehow within the sphere of the presidency by trying to, you know, in his view, prevent fraud in the election? Right, right. That, 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 like, I, I think that's not a serious argument, but in a funny way, it kind of like raises sort of like an interesting problem with the structure of American government. That, like, yeah, there is, there actually is no clean separation between president as party leader and president as constitutional officer. Um, and this, uh, by, or by contrast, you can make an actually kind of clean separation between like Supreme Court justice as member of a political coalition, Supreme Court justice as like, as like, you know, legal guy, right? Like that's a separation that's possible to make because the, 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 the former is not necessary to the latter, right? Like you can, which is how you get guys like Charles Evan, Evans Hughes who go from being elected officials to Supreme Court justices to like presidential candidates. It's, 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 this transition is possible to make, but the presidency isn't like that. And it's also, it also means that, that the legislature, rather than thinking of its job or the, or the, the part of the president's party in the legislature, rather than thinking of its job as being the accountability, holding the president to account and being, uh, being a, a separate force thinks of itself as in fact an enabler and an ally. And, and that, that makes impeachment an impossible tool. Once that, once that dynamic is built. The, the emergence of political parties basically renders a bunch of the accountability mechanisms of American style government, like inner, like they don't work because of the nature of political parties. And then you could say, oh, we should get rid of political parties. But like, there's a pretty good case to make that democracy cannot exist without political parties. Like it's, it's part of the thing. Um, and so you have, you know, we're, we are running into this situation where we're kind of like kind of running into the limits of what you can do with American style constitutional government, but also like the things that make democracy work like political parties. That's why we need a parliamentary system. Before we go, I just want to hit on what's happening in, in Georgia, because Emily, there's this really amazing story this week that Fannie Willis, who is leading the Georgia criminal prosecution of former president Trump, uh, over all the stuff that was done in Georgia to overturn the election. It was accused this week of having a secret inappropriate relationship an affair, I guess is presumed is what's being implied with a lawyer named Nathan Wade, who has been paid $654,000 by Atlanta to assist Willis's office on prosecutions, including prosecutions of Trump and co-defendants. Willis may have taken lavish vacations with Wade, vacations that presumably were funded by his government contracts that she is funneling to him. What's your sense about how damaging this is to Willis and more importantly to the case against Trump that uh, Willis and Wade have been working on? I mean, it depends what's true in all of this, right? So she hasn't responded. It's not clear to me. Um, whether the most serious allegations are true. Is she having an affair with him? Did she go on this vacation? Who paid for it? It's shining a spotlight on the fact that she hired Wade for this important role in this big, sprawling RICO case, even though he has uh, little or no criminal law experience, which does seem odd. And I think the question will be if this amounts to a real conflict of interest for her, if she did something that seems like it um, really calls her job into question and the role that he and she are playing in this case into question. I just can't tell yet. 
until she responds and we know what actually happened, then I'm kind of reluctant to draw a lot of conclusions. If she is forced to resign, if her reputation is tarnished, does that, is this case so intimately tied to her that the case is fatally wounded or is it just like, oh no, there are other prosecutors that can carry it forward. They haven't been having vacations with Nathan Wade. Yeah. I haven't heard anything yet that suggests that the case is uh, conflicted out in a way that would have the charges would have to be dropped. On the other hand, you know, if there is a scandal that involves her, she's a key figure. She made a bunch of tough decisions to bring these charges. She designed this big sprawling, case. And, you know, Trump will have a total field day politically with all of that if it's really true. And then, you know, what would happen if she resigned bringing in a new prosecutor? She's an elected official. How would that all work? Would that person continue the case? Like, just think of all the delay that that would entail. And, you know, the clock is ticking. So let's let's see what happens, though, before we jump to conclusions about this. All right. Before we leave this, the 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 depressing veil of Trump and the Trump world. Let's nod at uh, Chris Christie, who dropped out of the Republican presidential race, uh, accepting the inevitable before the New Hampshire primary. Um, uh, will we miss him, Jamel? Is this, was this a tremendous lost opportunity? Will it have any impact on the race? Does it make it possible for Nikki Haley, say, to win New Hampshire and then change the dynamics of of the Republican primary? You know, I'll say I, I, I was, I've always been skeptical of Christie's entry into the race in the first place, like the whole, I'm going to tell the truth to the voters always struck me as sort of, okay, whatever guy we'll see. Um, because as, as people might remember back in 2016, he was one of the early, you know, institutional supporters of Donald Trump. And so it's like, okay, whatever guy, but, um, he spent his time in the race, like directly going after Trump, directly going after the other candidates who refused to even criticize Trump. Uh, he, uh, in his sort of speech announcing that he'd be leaving the race, he straight up said, like, I don't think anyone who can't tell the truth about this guy is qualified to be president and took a direct shot at Haley and DeSantis, um, and said that he wasn't going to play any part in this guy getting elected. Uh, and I I don't know. I don't think, I don't think his departure necessarily is going to impact the race for the nomination. I'm not sure that his supporters are going to flock to Haley or anything. Um, but I do think this is all very noteworthy. It's like very noteworthy to see not, not uh, you know, a House backbencher, not someone long out of you know Republican politics go go you know uh, uh, denounce Trump in this way, but like a guy who could have been president, right? Chris Christie. My view is that if Chris Christie had run in 2012, he very well could have been president. Like this is a guy who very much has like the skill set to to be a successful presidential candidate. Um, and him coming out and saying, this guy cannot be president. Donald Trump cannot be president. And you should not vote for anyone who cannot say that clearly. I think that's at least significant. And I'll be interested to see how it plays out, not with Republican voters, not like Republican primary voters, but with the universe of people who might lean Republican and might consider voting Republican and who maybe hold Christie in some esteem how they're going to respond to him over the next months. We're joined on the GabFest again by Alec McGillis. Alec is a reporter at ProPublica. He's been on with us at least once, maybe several times before for his incredible reporting. Uh, And this week, he has a story in The New Yorker and ProPublica, Has School Become Optional About the Rise in School Absenteeism and the Efforts to Try to Reverse It? 
Alec, so we've talked on the GabFest a number of times about the alarming rise of absenteeism in American public schools post-pandemic. You've now given us a great occasion to talk more about it. Can you just start us off by giving some data on absenteeism and tell us what absenteeism is? Sure. Um, the numbers we usually use are the numbers for what's called chronic absenteeism. And so that's students who miss at least 10% of days. So in a typical school year, that's 18 days of the school year that they're missing. The rate of chronic absenteeism nationwide was uh, about 15% before the pandemic, um, the last full school year before the pandemic. Um, it shot up to, it almost doubled, shot up to 28% in the first full school year after schools came back, the 2021-22 school year. Um, so almost doubled um, after the pandemic. It has come down slightly since then. Um, we don't have nationwide numbers yet, um, but in the states that have reported since for last school year, there's been some modest improvement, um, but it's still much higher than it was before the pandemic. Just to clarify, absenteeism is not necessarily unexcused absences, is absence for any reason. So it could be for illness, but it could also be unexcused. The way that states report, districts report, might vary somewhat at the margins um, as far as whether a, an unexcused absence would would still count as being, being uh, whether an excused absence would still count as being being um, being absent. But, um, and that, that gets into a whole other problem where um, a, lot of, a lot of states have found that the rates of excused absences vary a lot by sort of race and class, that it's much, you're much more likely to get your absence excused if you're, you know, white and, and middle class. So that's, that's a whole other kind of ballgame. So the concern that I think is driving your reporting is that people are, some families are losing the habit of going to school every day, that it feels less essential, and that there's a lot of learning getting lost for kids, right? That school, there's a great historical section in your piece about the transition from the 19th to 20th century, where in the United States, going to school every day until you're at least 16 years old becomes a norm. And if you don't do it, you get called a dropout and that's bad. And the question I think your piece is asking is whether COVID eroded that really important norm. Um, and I just wanted to ask you what you found about that and what you think the kind of causes of the erosion are now that the pandemic is over. Yes, that really seems to be the fundamental issue here. And there are, there are lots of different reasons why kids don't make it to school on a given day, transportation, you know, health issues, looking out for a younger sibling, um, all sorts of different reasons. But but the what, what you hear from the people on the ground who I was going out with looking for missing students is that there's just been this tremendous erosion of the norm that we had of daily school attendance. Um, all Over all these decades, uh, we built up this, this norm, built up this expectation um, that this is what you do. And, and of course, we had we had chronically absent kids before, um, we had truant kids before, but now the, the numbers are such that it really looks as if there's been a loss of that habit, an erosion of that norm, a sense that if you miss school it's on a given day, it's not that big a deal. And, and that what happened during that year or year plus in a lot of districts 
was that was that the, the habit was lost in a sense. The word I kept hearing these workers use and also the families use was comfortable, that people got comfortable just staying at home and, and doing school from home, doing Zoom school from home. It was, in a sense, easier. Of course it is. You know, it's easier not to have to to get your kid out of bed, easier not to have to get, you know, get kids out into the cold and the rain and the bus. And and that it, that in a sense for that year or year plus, we did in, in a way give ourselves a pass to a certain degree for, for you know, lots of obviously um, reasons that were a justification at the time. And, and, but now it's been really hard to kind of get back into that norm. And that really is, is the core of what, what do you, the core question here, what do you do when this social norm that had built up over the generations is suddenly so eroded? How do you get that back? I like what kind of interventions do you think that school districts, that state governments even, um, could make to, um, begin to renormalize regular school attendance. I can imagine something punitive, but that doesn't seem like it would be particularly helpful or effective. Right. There's been a, and there has been a big shift away from punitive the last couple of decades, um, which has been quite striking to see that a lot of states that, that even states that still have truancy laws in the book are, are not, not enforcing them all that much. Um, there was that, this very interesting episode in 2019 when Kamala Harris you know, came under fire um, in the Democratic presidential primary for her um, pretty tough measures that she was, you know, was um, pushing as San Francisco DA and then California Attorney General on the truancy front, where she was really trying to do some pretty tough enforcement. So there's been a move away from from the sort of legal court approach to the problem, and and so one intervention is the one that I was reporting on, which is doing home visits, sending out people, whether they're private employees of a private company, as was the case in, in, in my article, or um, or school employees, community members working on behalf of the schools, going out and, and visiting homes of students who are chronically absent to try to figure out what's going on, try to figure out what the obstacles are, and kind of get that information back to the schools. Another intervention is to do basically um, Reminders, like kind of like text reminders, email reminders to families, um, kind of nudge them that way, often with, um, with stats showing how sort of how their students' absenteeism attendance fits in with others and, and trying to kind of use a sort of peer pressure to get parents and students to, to attend better. Um, there are other efforts within schools where you you basically, you take kids that are, have been missing a lot of school and just give them a whole lot of extra attention with weekly meetings with 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 mentors or staff members or possibly even representatives of the DA's office who are kind of coming in to sort of gently um you know g- gently suggest that that they they that they ought to start attending uh more consistently so that they avoid eventual possible eventual eventual legal actions some states are back to the punitive front are are also threatening to not necessarily take people, you know, to jail, which has been done at the extreme end, but but there has been a threat of of removing cash assistance from families. That's happened uh, at, the, at the margins in Michigan where I was doing my reporting. And then finally, there's this, there is a notion of possibly incentivizing attendance, you know, just straight cash incentives for attendance. You see that mentioned somewhat as well. Over all this, I would say the important thing is that 
is to, to note is that this probably shouldn't just be on the schools themselves. That's what I kept hearing from people that, um, this has become such a huge crisis. Um, millions of students not attending at the levels that they were before the pandemic that, that it really is kind of on all of us and society as a whole on government as a whole to grapple with this. The fact is that we as a society made the decision to, to close schools to in-person instruction for a year or more or more in lots of the parts of the country. And we did that for the sake of society. And, and that came with consequences that we're now seeing. And, and in a way it's now really on society as a whole to grapple with this problem. Alec, when you look at these data, one thing that, that really is striking is that there are places that are massively worse than other places. So I live in Washington, D.C., where the chronic absenteeism rate is almost 50%. Chicago, similarly, almost 50%. Uh, Alaska, New Mexico are in the 40s. The places where it's, where it's you know, even more epidemic, where it's pan, where it's, where it's so disturbingly high, what, what distinguishes them from the places where it's just bad? Well, it's, it's definitely much worse in our cities. Um, one should note though, that, um, that, that, that the, the rate has gone up just about everywhere. This is something that we're seeing even in better off, you know, suburban districts, you're seeing higher rates of absenteeism, even there, we're seeing it at all, at all grade levels. Um, this is really, you know, K to 12, uh, K to 12 problem. The, um, the rate, you know, it's not very complicated. The rates have gone up the most or the, are now the highest in the places where they were high before. And, and so they're, they're higher in, um, in cities that have high rates of poverty and, and all the, um, the challenges that, that come with that. And what we're also seeing is that, I mean, this, this is something that we should be, you know, worried about regardless, um, because it's, kids get so much from being in school. Um, but, you have seen in cities like Washington, where you just, which you just mentioned, at the same time as we're seeing these high rates of absenteeism, we have seen high rates of other things like car thefts. Um, and not all car thefts are being, are of course, being done by, by young people, but a lot of them are. And, and it's just, it's not complicated again that when kids aren't in school, um, you know, there are, they, you know, can might be spending their time doing things that aren't health, healthy. One should also note, though, that most of the kids who are missing school, um, is what I found when I was going around with these workers in Michigan, are not out causing, quote, causing trouble. They're at home by themselves, on their phone, playing video games, sleeping late. They're, they're, they're alone. They're on their own. And, and that's actually one more thing to reason for, to be concerned about this, because it's actually the isolation that, that comes with this that is so especially concerning. Well, I find this whole topic so heart-wrenching, and I think the reason is that I feel like there's a dilemma at the center of it, which is that school is really important. We have lots of data about what an important role it plays in kids' lives for learning and social reasons. And yet at the same time, it seemed like the families who were having this problem with chronic absenteeism, for the most part, there was nothing like deliberate on the parents' part. It was a sign of them being overwhelmed by having two jobs or all the other struggles of poverty and dysfunction that were going on. And so it seemed like 
there's a promising aspect of your reporting, which is these home visits. I kind of fastened on to them as a way to try to reach out to families, find out what's wrong, like a kid missing a winter coat, a problem, a practical problem that could get solved. And it kind of reminded me of the data about how when you send nurses into the homes of people with babies, that can really improve the health of the kids and the families. And I wondered if there's some way... Um, that your reporting suggests that there's actually like an opportunity here to more closely connect schools or the companies that outsource these home visits to these families so that we're learning more about them, that they're getting pulled back into the social fabric. Absolutely. And that is the sort of ideal promise of this approach. Um, it, you're, you're reaching out to them. You're showing that you actually care. I mean, a lot of the families would be kind of, we'd go, you know, I was doing this day after day. And you'd go to some homes where the people were really kind of, you could tell they were startled that the school had actually cared enough to send someone out to them to see what was going on. And right there, that's, that's some kind of a message that, that this matters and that society is concerned. Um, it does take a ton of effort. And, and what I saw was that the approach being taken by this company could definitely be improved on. Um, they're, they've chosen to do it basically just um, cold calling. They go door to door, they've got a list of names and addresses, and very often people aren't home or they're not awake and you're, you're left standing at the door without an answer and you just leave a letter at the door. And whereas Connecticut, um, which has really been a for, you know, in the forerunner in this and as a state and trying to deal with this problem, they're doing home visits where in a, in a different way. They're actually making appointments ahead of time and and they're really setting up like often hour long visits with families. It might even be at the Dunkin' Donuts if they don't want to, you know, have people come to their home. But it's a very intensive meeting that happens, and and it's done by school employees or or community members who are being paid by the schools to to do it. And um, and it's much more deliberate in that sense. The the people at the company I was with said that they actually prefer going cold call because they feel like it gives them a more honest, candid look at what's actually going on in the home than if someone is, someone sort of is preparing, has prepared for a visit and kind of has their, their story together as it were. Um, but, but definitely if one can figure out how to do these visits in the, you know, in the most effective way, they hold a lot of promise. Alec McGillis has written, has school become optional in the New Yorker and ProPublica? Alec, thanks for coming on the Catfest. Thank you for having me. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, you're outside your home. You're on a, you're have a respite from the dreariness in New Haven. So you're filled with joy and light and probably you're liquored up already, even though it's only nine in the morning. What are you going to be chattering about? Ooh, such allegations coming my way. I am at that time of the year where I try to go and catch up on all the movies that I missed, which is pretty much all the movies. And it is true that some of the movies I'm excited to see from 2023 are not streaming yet. But I saw two movies in the last couple of weeks, which I thought were so good. The first one is Past Lives, which was a big hit, I think, at the Sundance Film Festival. I knew nothing about this, but now I've gone off and read about it. So good. Such a, a movie about like really pretty normal people who you could imagine actually meeting. Um, but really lovely and 
quite dramatic and moving. And then the other movie, which seemed to have nothing to do with real life, at least to me, was is uh, Anatomy of a Fall, which is um, a kind of thriller movie with compl- wildly implausible court scenes, which I thought was really good. So Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, if you haven't seen them yet. Jamel, what is your chatter? I, you know, I'm also in the catching up on movies, uh, uh, you know, part of the year. Um, I, every January, I tell myself I will only watch movies from the previous year uh, just to make sure I get everything. I have not yet seen Past Lives or Anatomy of a Fall, but they're on my list. I did see something, though, that is not going to be up for any awards, um, but it's still very good. Uh, and it is a Chilean martial arts film called The Fist of the Condor. Uh, and it is, I forget the, the lead whose name I forget was in John Wick four as like a grunt who got beat up. Uh, and it is very short, like 80 minute film, just about this like martial arts monk in the, in the mountains of Ch- uh, Chile protecting a book that contains like the secrets of, you know, ancient Incan martial arts. It's a little, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very kind of throwbacky film like very reminiscent of a 1970s kung fu flick um which is to say it's like the premise is extremely contrived and the plot only exists for you to see martial artists go at each other for a bunch of time and it's worth it it's some of the most incredible um practical martial arts stuff i've seen on film in a very long time it is um actually kind of remarkable uh to see um, the kind of stuff that you that it didn't doesn't feel like is being made anymore, but 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 is. Um, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna really recommend this. It's a, again a very short watch, a perfect kind of like Friday night watch. Um, and if you're interested at all, at all in martial arts films, The Fist of the Condor is is one of the best ones I've seen in a very long time. That was a very specific kind of recommendation. Uh, I'm about to give either, as I said, the greatest or worst cocktail chatter <laughs> in my life. So we'll see. Um, but first, before I do that, I my girlfriend and I are going to take a, a long weekend in Amsterdam in February. I've had such great luck in years past with GabFest listeners sending me tips, places to eat. Uh, I've met up with some of you. If you. Maybe you lead an amazing walking tour of Amsterdam. Um What's the great day trip from Amsterdam? If you have thoughts, please uh, email them to me at davidplotz at gmail.com or at gabfest at slate.com. Okay, here we go. You guys need to pay attention to this. It's very, it can be very important. So I had a dream the other night and I finally, after this dream, understand how the prophets of old felt, how like Hezekiah and Jeremiah and Hosea understood that a greater power was speaking to them um, because I had such a dream the other night and it, a powerful vision came to me and it's shaken me to my core and I feel like like St. Teresa of Avila or, or the prophet Nahum that I have to bear witness. So what is it that came to me in a dream? I'll get to it in a second. I don't know. So far, I'm kind of terrified. <laughs> what is it that came to me in a dream? Okay. Have you, I'll get to that in a second. Have you ever thought about what is the most consecutive times the same letter can appear in a sentence or phrase? For example, there are no English words that I can think of Uh, that have the same letter three times in a row. It's not counting down, not counting sort of written down articulations like grr or arg. But there there are lots of words that have double letters, like the word keep, K-E-E-P, you know, double E. So can you create a sentence that has the same letter more than two times in a row? You can. It's easy 
in fact, to think of uh, a, a sentence or a phrase that is the same letter four times in a row. Imagine you are a Halloween DJ. You might tell your friends, I MC eerie parties. So MC, E-M-C-E-E, E-E-R-I-E for eerie. You have MC ends with two E's, eerie starts with two E's, you get four E's in a row. So the question, of course, then a lot of philosophers and mathematicians have asked this question, is can you do more than four of the same letter in a row? And I am here to tell you that it's possible. And the reason I know it's possible is it because it came to me in a dream. I'm not shitting you. Literally, a phrase emerged wholly to me in a dream the other night. In the same way that for Jeremiah, the phrase, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper, not harm you, plans to give you hope in a future, the way that came to the prophet Jeremiah, uh, a phrase came to me. So here is the phrase that came to me. And before I say it, I need to set up the scenario where you would say this phrase. So you are a Southerner, like Jamel, in fact, here. You are visiting South America with your family. And you tell them, that tomorrow you're going to have a day trip with local pack animals, what would you tell them? Obviously, what you'd say is, kids, tomorrow, y'all all llama ride. So let's break it down. That's four. No, it's not. Y'all okay. all llama. It's a future tense. Ah. So y'all, which is a, an informal plural form of the pronoun you, Y. A-L-L, ends in two L's. Then there's an apostrophe, contractional L-L, to create the future contraction will. That's two more L's. And then the animal llama, which starts with two L's. That's six consecutive appearances of the letter L in a correct English sentence. Can anyone do better? I don't think so. God sent it to me in a dream, so probably not. And I didn't do any Googling to see whether. I haven't even checked this in Google, so... But I don't need to check in Google because God sent it to me. I did run it by an English professor and a scholar, and she gasped in amazement and accepted it as a legitimate sentence. That English professor, that was my mother, to be sure. But she did accept it. (laughs) But I'm looking forward to more of such prophetic revelations, and I'm going to share them with the GabFest audience when they occur. I literally woke up in the middle of the night. I wrote it down. Y'all, llama. It literally came to me, and here I am today. There, there is a god, and he's a very dedicated Scrabble player. Uh, but listeners, you've sent them your chatters to us at gabfestatslight.com. If you've had dreams, if you've had revelations, or if you just have read something wonderful, you should send it to us. Um, and our listener chat this week comes from Aaron Bumgardner. Hello, GapFest listeners. This is Aaron Bumgarner calling in from Arlington, Massachusetts. I've been chattering a lot recently about the e-newsletter called The Art of Noticing by Rob Walker, which offers useful ideas, practical prompts, and unexpected inspiration for people who want to stay interested in life. In one recent issue, the author talks about a friend who requested a special noticing project as she rode public transportation during a week-long experiment of no multitasking. A few of the ideas in the newsletter included focusing on what you can see out the window. Another idea was to turn people into a series of games by tracking who's on the train for the longest portion of your trip. I don't often ride public transportation myself, but this got me thinking about all different kinds of special noticing projects that we can use to be more mindful and creative about our day-to-day activities. I thought listeners might find this idea intriguing, especially as we're thinking about resolutions and intentions for the new year. I hope you enjoy.
that's our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Chain of Roth, our researchers, Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by the Giants. Ben Richmond is senior director for Podcast Ops. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of audio for Slate. For Emily Bazelon and the delightful Jamel Bowie, who can come back any time he wants. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. So, so a listener named Deep Ubi uh, sent us a Slate Plus idea months ago, and I kept trying to get John to do it because I was like, John, you'd like it. And he's like, no, it requires too much thought. It's, it's, it's going to require too much preparation. I can't. It's too big a question. And I was like, come on, John. And then John is on vacation. So I thought, sneak it around him because Emily is game for anything. And I knew that our Jamel would immediately cotton on to this. And so uh, Deep sends us something that uh, they got off Twitter, which is, uh, you're in charge of choosing four presidents for new Mount Rushmore-like memorial. The rules are all four presidents must be deceased. I, I think we can put an asterisk on that if people want to change that. You can't choose any of the current Mount Rushmore presidents. Feel free to consider accomplishments outside the, outside the presidency. What are your choices? So uh, to me, it's like, Two of these are super obvious, and then two are kind of open. But I'm, I'm maybe Jamel. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you first crack. You can, you pick, pick your first. Okay, all right. Um, so I want to say that you earlier when you when you previewed this uh, earlier, you said that it'd be hard to actually make another Mount Rushmore, and I'm gonna say no. All we would have to do is expropriate Stone Mountain, kind of like blast the oh, yeah. remaining Confederates okay. off of, and then we have our tableau. <laughs> That is so helpful because I was objecting to the whole premise of creating another <laughs> environmental monstrosity. So I like that solution very much. Um, okay. So in the spirit of expropriating um, Stone Mountain, my first pick is uh, JQA, John Quincy Adams. Um, not because his presidency was all that distinguished, although – you know, when you look at what came next, Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren and Indian removal, he looks very good in contrast. <laughs> um, but more because JQA, as, as I think many listeners may know, left the presidency and then was serving the House of Representatives basically until his death. And in the House was an outspoken opponent of slavery, was an outspoken opponent of efforts by Southern representatives to um, gag discussion of slavery on the floor um, was a really pivotal person in sort of like the emergence of political anti-slavery in the 1830s and 1840s. So JQA goes up uh, next in the no no no, no 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 you get oh, no, no 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 one you get we're gonna do one we'll do oh, one that's yeah, it that's, your, that's number one. That's we'll, my we'll one. We'll get okay. to everybody's. All right. But just but I I'm all JQA was was on mine. I'm just gonna say also there. I agree with that. He's a, he was my fourth choice. Emily, what's your first? I accept that. Uh, FDR seemed like he should make it for the New Deal, for saving the country from the Great Depression, for the era of um, greater equality and social programs that he brought in, and then for successfully waging World War II. Yes. Okay. I, I was, was FDR on your list, Jamel? Yes, FDR is on my okay. list. FDR. So we all had FDR. All right. So FDR is down. All right. My first one. No surprise to anyone who's listened to the Gabfest for all these years. Ulysses S. Grant, obviously, uh, you know the greatest of our military leaders. Um, 
the most astonishing human story, the, the, his rise from nothing to the leadership of the nation in, in, in practically no time at all is probably the most amazing American success story there's ever been. Uh, he was a better president than he's given credit for. He, you know, he did fight for reconstruction. He fought to break the Klan. He did try to maintain black economic and political power um, and was a, you know, was a marvelous person to boot. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.